turn now to our scripture reading for the sermon this morning. As we continue making our way through 1 Corinthians, we come now to chapter 16. And we'll be reading, I'll be reading now uh, the first four verses of that chapter. As we read here about a collection for the saints that was being taken up in Corinth. So this is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. And so let's attend with reverence to the infallible, the inerrant word of God. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, then they will go with me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let us pray now to seek the Lord's blessing over the preaching and the hearing of his word. Lord God, indeed, we do ask that you would grant us minds set on heavenly things, minds that are focused and not distracted, that we might be learning your truth. We pray that we would attend well to the reading of your word, to its exposition, that we would hear it, and not only be hearers of your word hereafter, but doers of it. For we pray in the name of the one who fulfilled all your word, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, of course, the reason that I read from Malachi 3 earlier this morning wasn't because I was trying to get you to dig deeper into your pockets before we took up the collection. It just happens, of course, that that our Old Testament reading there or other scripture reading is uh, right before we take up the collection. But it's because of its connection, or at least a conceptual connection there, to uh, what we're going to be talking about this morning here as we have come now to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. In that chapter, Paul offers some final instructions uh, and uh, teachings, as well as laying out some of his plans for the near future, as we'll see before he comes to the closing of the letter. Lord willing, next week we'll talk a little more about Paul's plans. Uh, Back in chapter 7, you might recall, the apostle began answering some questions that the Corinthian Christians had asked him in a letter that they'd written. And chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And you'll notice maybe here that chapter 16, verse 1, also begins with those words, Now concerning. And some translations may render it a little bit differently, uh, but the Greek words are the same. It's peri de, uh, now concerning, or but concerning, or and about. Uh, there are various combinations of words like that. The point is that Paul appears here to be answering another question that the Corinthians have asked. They've asked him, what about this collection for the saints? How do you want us to handle it? Perhaps we can discern that perhaps from the way that uh, he words things here in these first four verses of chapter 16. This particular question, as I said, is about the collection for the saints. As we saw back at the beginning of the letter, in 
the New Testament contexts, saints, refers not to a particular category of Christians who are maybe better at it than the rest. No, saints refers to all believers in Jesus Christ. God's holy people, that's really what it means, holy ones. His sanctified ones. Our word in English, saint, comes from the Latin word for sanctified, one, those who are being made holy. From verse 3, we can tell that this collection is being taken to Jerusalem. And that tells us a lot about the biblical and historical context then. So today that's where I'm going to start, the biblical and historical context, tell you what's going on here. And then we'll consider some principles that we find taught or supported by this passage. Namely, we see first day worship supported here. Uh, also, collections as an element of new covenant worship. Uh, thirdly, we see, we'll see generosity, especially toward the household of faith, is commended. And then lastly, we see the principle of accountability. So first, let's consider some of the biblical and historical context here. In Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, we read, And in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem, or came from Jerusalem, to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Holy Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, I should pause there and just note uh, the word used for world there is not the word that means cosmos or the universe or the whole world. Uh, there's not a statement here that means that China was going through a famine and North America was going through a famine here at the same time. It's the word oikumenein. Uh, it, it could mean inhabited earth at its broadest sense, places where people live. But often it was used in the New Testament context or in the first century uh, to refer to the Roman Empire or even just significant parts of it. It literally means something like the great or the extended household. Indeed, many sources tell us uh, there were several localized famines in significant portions of the Roman Empire during the reign of Claudius, the Emperor Claudius, who ruled from uh, AD 41 to 54. We know that Judea was hit particularly hard by one of those times of famine. And there were crop failures around the same time in Egypt and Gaul. And uh, those were the places, if you couldn't grow your own crops, of course you would buy them from somewhere else. So where would you get them if you were in the Roman Empire? The most likely places to have surpluses were Egypt and Gaul. But if Egypt and Gaul are also running short on food, well now you're in trouble. So we can tell from Acts 11 also that Agabus' prediction must have specifically warned that there was going to be a famine in Judea, not necessarily hit Antioch so hard, but that the people in Judea would be hit more hard because the first response of the brethren in Antioch wasn't to say, oh, we'd better save up some food for ourselves so that we'll be okay then. No, it was to take up an offering to send to the Christians in Judea. With crop failures in other places like Egypt, which were, again, usually the bread baskets of the, the empire, there were few resources to call upon. Food was scarce and thus expensive. The Jerusalem church likely 
would impoverish itself, and the, the Antioch church is recognizing this, and they say, well, they're going to run out of money pretty quickly if they're trying to, to keep people who are running out of food fed. And so they expected the Jerusalem church to be running low on funds, trying to just keep its members from starving. And so Acts 11, verses 29 and 30 say, then the disciples, this is those who are at Antioch, so then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so this has probably been something on Paul's mind for a very long time because he was in on taking that first collection just to prepare for this time of famine to Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians was most likely written in early AD 55, a few months after the death of the Emperor Claudius. And at that time, the Jerusalem church, even if the famine time was, was abating, it would have still been reeling economically from the effects of the famine. Persecution might also have contributed to their poverty. As we know that there were times of persecution in Jerusalem in that period. So Paul is still taking up collections for their relief. From 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4, we can tell that Paul took up a similar collection from the churches in Macedonia as well. He writes, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So even though they were poor, they were giving generously, he says. For I bear witness that according to their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry of the saints. And from today's passage in verse 1, we see uh, Paul also took up a similar collection from the churches in Galatia. Romans 15, 25 and 26 tells us that the Corinthian church heeded Paul's instructions that he's giving here and contributed as well. Romans 15, 25 and 26, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia, that's where Corinth is, to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So that gives us something of the biblical and historical context. We know what was going on here. There was a, a famine, or had been one, uh, that had impoverished the Jerusalem church, or had hit it hard economically, and churches in Galatia and Macedonia and around Corinth were taking up collections and sending them to Jerusalem. The church of Antioch contributed ahead of time. And afterward, churches which Paul established in Galatia and Macedonia and Greece. Paul accompanied these alms to Jerusalem as he attests in Acts 24.17 where he says to the Roman Emperor Felix, Now, after many years I came here, that is, I came here to Judea, to bring alms and offerings to my nation. So, now that we have a sense of the historical context, let's consider some principles that are taught or supported in this passage. Number one, we see support in this passage the concept of first-day worship. A lot of people might wonder, well, why do Christians worship on a different day of the week if Christianity is the fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism? Well, we look here at verse 2. On the first day of the week, 
Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, some translations might even say they're the first of the Sabbath, but the, the Greek of the New Testament borrows the Hebrew word Sabbath to speak of a week. This was something that had, was more broad in Greek culture, in fact, at that time. So the, the concept of the seven-day week was the, the, the use of the word Sabbath from Hebrew had been um, co-opted. It was a borrowed term to speak of a seven-day week. And so when you see the first of the Sabbath or something like that, well, that doesn't mean like the first few hours of the Sabbath day. It means the first of a week leading up to a Sabbath. Uh, So Paul is saying here on the first day of the week, he expects Christians are going to, in Corinth, are going to gather some collection. It's logical to assume that Paul gives this instruction because he expects the Christians there to be taking up a collection uh, and he expects them to be gathered together on the first day of the week. And so that would be a convenient time to do it. Indeed, in the New Testament, whenever we're told what day specifically, what day of the week it is, when Christians have gathered for worship, we see that it's actually the first day of the week. Certainly Paul and his companions would seek out Jewish synagogues uh, on the Old Testament Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. But when believers in Jesus gathered for particular New Covenant worship, it was the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 2, I don't think it's simply because they, it happens to be the Old Testament festival of Pentecost or, or uh, the Feast of Weeks when uh, the disciples are gathered together. I think they're gathered together there, arguably, because it happens to be the first day of the week. Pentecost always took place on the first day of the week. In Acts 20, verse 7, though, we know absolutely for certain that we read this. Now, on the first day of the week... When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. might well be that 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 first day of the week then is thought to be beginning at evening time, that they're still using the Hebrew way of counting days. And that could be why Paul preached until midnight, not necessarily to preach from morning to midnight, but from sunset till midnight. But if Christians did this every day, or on random days, there would be no reason for Luke to tell us it happened to be, or that it specifically was, the first day of the week. Why would he even bother saying that, if the day didn't matter? But he says, on the first day of the week, they got together, they were breaking bread, and Paul preached to them till midnight. So the fact is, Luke is telling us that because it was the first day of the week, the brethren had gathered for fellowship and worship. Indeed, the universal testimony of the early church fathers, the people trained by the apostles for ministry and those trained by those men, uh, the first few generations of Christians, we have the universal attestation from them is that Christians observed the Sabbath on the first day of the week and not on the seventh. And they did this in remembrance of Christ's resurrection. Here in verse 1, Paul presumes that the church will gather on the first day of the week. So we see here first day worship supported by this passage. It isn't the only uh, 
only passage we go to for a reasoning as to why we know that worship is to take place on the first day of the week, but we do see it supported here. A second thing we see taught or supported here is, is the principle of taking up a collection. That taking up a collection is a biblically endorsed element of New Covenant worship. Public worship, now in the New Testament period, uh, can include and should include regularly the taking up of collections. Verse 2 again. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now some have argued that Paul is merely saying, I want each of you on a particular day of the week to set something aside in store at your house. Just keep it somewhere so that setting it aside so that it's not part of your household budget and you're not spending it on other things. But, but if that were the case, there would still be a need when Paul arrived for a collection of those funds to be taken up. There'd have to be some central place to where they're brought or Paul would have to go around taking up a collection. But here he says, you should do this so there won't be a collection when I get there. He's clearly expecting that a collection will have been taken up each Lord's Day during public worship so that he won't have to take up a collection when he gets there to Corinth. So we see that the taking up of a collection during public worship is warranted in the New Testament. Now this is talking, of course, about a special offering for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. This isn't talking directly about the principle of tithing. We can talk more in depth about that some other time. But notice that Paul says each one is to give as he may prosper. And that does connect both to offerings that we would give beyond the tithe and our tithes. In terms of supporting the local church, tithing, of course, is a great principle that allows us to give to the Lord's work as he has prospered us individually. There's not a set sum as if so many uh, hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars per year every, every Christian has to pay into the church, whether that's a huge portion or a small portion of your income. But rather, as Simon Kistemacher writes, Paul teaches the Corinthians the commendable habit of continued giving to the Lord. He uses the present tense of the verb to put aside to indicate that every believer must do so regularly. And then Denny Proutot in his book, Public Worship 101, writes, A basic Reformed hermeneutical principle is that Old Testament commands remain valid and binding unless specifically abrogated in the New Testament. Therefore, this is of course not talking about particular elements of worship, but this is a general command though. So therefore, tithing remains a valid principle for, New, for the New Testament church since the command to tithe has never been abrogated. The case of tithing is similar to that of the Sabbath, as already discussed earlier in his book here, uh, early Sabbath practices, practice was incorporated into the Ten Commandments. There was therefore both a moral and ceremonial aspect to the Sabbath. The abrogation of the ceremonial law did not set aside the moral requirement of the Sabbath. And so let me stop there and point out that's, that has something to do with our argument for why the Sabbath is on a different day now. The ceremonial aspect has changed, but the moral command to observe one and seven is still there. He says here, going on, although similar, the case for tithing is not the same as that for the Sabbath. Pastor Quigley, he's talking about Andrew Quigley. Uh, some of you may be familiar with him. Uh, Pastor Quigley observes, 
Whilst it is true that tithing was an ancient custom, which Abram observed and which Jacob vowed to observe, and that it was subsequently embraced within the ceremonial law, the matter of whether or not it is a creation ordinance is open to discussion. And then Proutot says, although tithing may not be a creation ordinance, and although there were ceremonial aspects to tithing, the abrogation of the ceremonial law does not necessarily set aside the principle followed by Abraham. As Andrew Quigley says, in addressing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the Lord Jesus commanded that tithing be observed as well as the most, the more important matters. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So Proteo says, tithing is a principle incorporated into the ceremonial law. Justice, mercy, and faith are also, excuse me, this is quickly. The tithing is a principle incorporated into the ceremonial law. Justice, mercy, and faith are also principles incorporated into the ceremonial law. Christ commends both. Justice, mercy, and faith are not abrogated with the setting aside of the ceremonial law as a principle preceding the ceremonial law. Neither is tithing. Part of the beauty of tithing is God's genius in requiring this specific amount. For most people, taking the first 10% of their gross income requires them to adjust their lifestyle to fit the other 90%. In other words, when they give the first 10% to the Lord, he then governs the use of their entire income. The tithe is also based upon gross income. The, the idea is not to deduct living expenses, food, clothing, rent, taxes, etc., and then tithe on the net. When believers tithe on their gross income, they give God the glory he is due by recognizing that all their income belongs to the Lord. Well, it's clear from verse 2 here, though, that we're not talking specifically about tithing, uh, that it is approved and it's appropriate to take up collections when Christians are gathered together on the Lord's Day for worship. And thus we find taking up a collection is a biblically endorsed element of New Covenant worship. A third principle we see that's taught here in this passage is the principle of generosity. Especially generosity toward the household of faith, toward God's called people. In verses 1 and 2 we find that the collection is for the saints, for believers. And Paul encourages that a continuous collection be taken up. Anytime you're gathered together, take out this collection. Not, not a passing of the hat at one gathering, but an ongoing collection each Lord's Day. Acts 20, verse 35, Paul says, I have shown you in every way, he's talking to the Ephesian elders here, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Galatians 6, 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we see generosity supported by those scriptures and by this one. And generosity especially toward the believers. This is a godly practice. And fourth then, 
We find in this passage the principle of accountability. This is where I think a lot of the modern day prosperity preachers would have stopped preaching in this passage. <laughs> They're happy to, to point out that people should give generously, and of course, give generously to me is what they're usually thinking of. <clears throat> but they won't point out the principle of accountability that's also found in this passage. Verses 3 and 4, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. In Romans 15, verses 25 and 26, as we read earlier, we see that Paul did accompany that collection to Jerusalem, but he didn't go alone. As he says in Acts 20, verse 7, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. But notice, he did not insist on taking the collection by himself. Just trust me, everybody, I'm good. I've got all, just give me all this money, and it'll, it'll be fine. Whether he accompanied or not, he, he, would, he was saying, you know, whether I accompany this offering or not, you have to have chosen, trustworthy people, and they will be the ones who make sure this gets to where it's going. And there had to be multiple people, including agents chosen by the Corinthian congregation, who were keeping track of these funds. No one can credibly accuse the Apostle Paul of being some fraudster or con artist who was just trying to bilk churches out of their money and enrich himself. The Greek of verse 3 actually makes clear there, there need to be several chosen messengers, those chosen by the congregation to oversee the transport of this money, of this treasure. The Greek word for these actually appears. But when I arrive whomever, and that's plural, you approve through letters these. So it's not just one person you approve through letters, it's multiple people you approve through letters these I will send to carry your gift to Jerusalem. It's both moral and wise for the church to be careful with its money and to have a system of accountability for those who handle it. You, can, you don't have to look very far, probably especially in the days of the internet, to find stories of churches who didn't practice accountability and were bilked out of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So again, in this passage, we, we find four principles supported. First day worship. So be sure to gather with God's people for public worship each Lord's Day, unless you're providentially prevented. Collections as an element of worship are supported by this passage. Rest in good conscience that we can take up a collection and you can contribute to it. You're not violating any moral law of God or any ceremonial law for the new covenant. You can do that during worship knowing that the Bible endorses this practice as an act of worship to the Lord. It's not a man-made addition, but a God-ordained element of New Covenant worship. And be generous, whether it's at the collection time or at other times when you have opportunity, but be generous and especially toward the household of faith. That's commended 
in this passage. But as you're being generous, be sure that there's accountability. This is one of the difficulties in giving to unknown charities, right? That we, uh, how do we know that there's accountability there? And so there have been many times that people have solicited funds from me for a decent cause, but I need to research it a little bit ahead of time before I can give to it. Even if I support the cause, it doesn't mean that I support the way you would handle the money when I give it to you, or is it getting to where it's supposed to go? So be sure that there's accountability in the church for how money is handled. In our context, just so you know that there's accountability, we have a treasurer who handles our accounts as the elders direct. Uh, funds going in and out of the church are, are managed, uh, overseen by her, but also accounted for by the deacons uh, with the oversight of the elders. We look at a treasurer's report every month as well. Uh, we have an independent audit done every year. And our financial reports are overseen by the presbytery. And a financial report is made to synod each year. So there are lots of levels of accountability. Lots of checks and balances and layers of accountability. You'd have to have a massive conspiracy in order to mishandle the funds of the church on any significant level. And these are wise principles for us all to follow. Be worshipful, including with your tithes and offerings. You worship, of course, on the first day of the week. Be generous and be accountable. This is the Lord's Lord for us. The Lord's Word. I said that backwards. This is the Lord's Word for us today. Well, let's pray. Lord, grant us worshipful and generous hearts that we might give cheerfully for your kingdom and grant that we may be careful and accountable with things that you have given us. Grant that we might be faithful, especially to gather for worship on the day that you have called us to together for worship. That we might do all of these things with hearts that are set on heavenly things and be laying up not earthly treasures so much as we're laying up heavenly treasures. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.